0: Good morning and welcome to Rising. The show of shows is
1: here, so buckle up, buckle in. Uh, Brianna, what's going on? Well, today, Ravi, we have expert economists from both sides of the political spectrum to debate whether or not the Inflation Reduction Act will, in fact, do much for inflation. And later, Katie Halper joins us to discuss the updates on the Gaza airstrikes.
0: But right now, let's return to the Mar-a-Lago saga. According to CNN, former President Trump is weighing whether or not to release the surveillance tapes from his Florida residence that would reveal the faces and identities of the FBI agents who searched the premises. Now, according to Trump and his attorneys, the FBI asked them to turn off the cameras
1: before the search, but they left them on instead and today a florida judge will decide whether or not to make public the affidavit used to justify the fbi's raid of mar-a-lago attorney general merrick garland has said releasing the document would greatly jeopardize Mm -hmm. the doj's investigation
0: okay so first on the cameras Mm -hmm. um point trump like if the fbi if law anybody says yeah can you turn off the cameras no do not do that leave them on uh i mean we saw for Uvalde, for instance okay. as so many police law enforcement inc- incidents that take place yes we want to be able to see that footage <laughs> we do not let these things happen in private if only to to forestall or prevent you know the kind of talk that what if they planted evidence well if we have surveillance footage we can dispel that okay. now that mm-hmm. might be different than and probably what you're going to say is does that mean we it should all be released wholesale right. to the american public to identify the fbi agents Perhaps not. That can be discussed. But I, I ab- heartily agree with the decision not to turn off the cameras. Yeah,
1: but this is the key question, right? The the idea of keeping some record of what happened in case you need to hold someone accountable down the line is a very different thing than trying to identify and dox, if you will, FBI agents right after we've already just had this incident of Trump's supporters, Trump supporters, Trump-sympathetic people going to an FBI you know, agent's house. Well, I don't— to cause them harm, physical Yeah, harm. I, but I don't know if it's, I mean, we were doing that with
0: the Uvalde police, right? We were identifying which ones were, well,
1: I, I mean, I, I don't know, but I'm sure some people were trying to identify who they were yeah. interpersonally. But that, I, you know, I feel like that was a little bit more of a public accountability issue than this. Than could this. become a public accountability issue. It could, depending on what's issue. on the tapes, right? If you if, yeah. you, if the tapes reveal that they are, I don't know, just randomly stealing Trump's golden toilet or what have you. I mean, asset forfeiture issues are right. big, as we talked about yesterday on right. my radar. Then I could see something along those lines. But this does feel punitive, and the way he's framing it is punitive. Oh. And maybe he would be better off saying this is a public safety issue or a public accountability issue because i see x y and d in the tapes but you know he obviously has the right to do what he's going to do but in the context of what's recently happened with his own supporters and fbi agents you know i hope he's ready to take the heat for whatever whatever ends up potentially happening after these people are identified well but
0: that's on the you know the whatever nut cases right attack fbi field offices or sorry, right those don't do any of that that's irresponsible but Look, if you're, again, is a citizen. As a citizen, if law enforcement comes to your house, wants to enter, like, yes, get that stuff on video. That's something every, that's something a leftist would tell you. That's something a, any civil libertarian would tell you. You know, you want the body cam footage. You want the cell phones out recording it. You want all of that stuff.
1: But we were talking a little bit ago about public sympathies around this issue. Yeah. So the, the what he is permitted to do legally is a little bit different from what he's kind of Uh, But is acceptable morally and whether or not it's going to tip the balance one way or the other in terms of the public perception of how he's behaved So in a lot of ways Trump is Occupying a kind of you know victim status Mm -hmm. in all of this. It's a witch hunt. They're coming to get me There's nothing really here. They're treating me differently than they treated Hillary Clinton Okay, if he starts going on the offensive and putting a target as it were on the backs of FBI agents is the public perception going to shift I don't know, I think that's just a calculation he has to make internally, regardless of whether or not he is like, kind of legally prohibited from doing something like that, or okay, legally sure. culpable for doing he, something like that.
0: He should, He should, in consultation with people with better judgment, think through the ramifications <laughs> of just like wholesale releasing that footage. Mm. But I don't think it's wrong to have collected that footage in the first place. Fair enough. And in fact, could, it, there's a world where it helps make, convince his supporters that no, no, one, yeah. there's no fake evidence planted, yeah. g- assuming that there was no fake evidence
1: And to evidence the Day example, by the way, When you are taking, if you're making that assessment about how the public is going to perceive this, I think when you're stacking up the reality of, you know, 19 dead children against the potential harm that's going to come to the cops who didn't step in to protect them, that public calculus is overwhelmingly in your favor. We want to know who did the bad thing that let all these children die. In this matchup with Donald Trump, where we're talking about an investigation that may or may not be warranted and people mm-hmm. who may or may not be doing their jobs and the backlash may, may or may not be really grievous to the individuals involved, that's a very different calculus. Mm.
0: All right. Well, according to Newsweek, the raid on Mar-a-Lago was specifically intended to recover Trump's personal stash of hidden documents that he has collected since the early days of his administration, including documents uh, pertaining actually to Russiagate, And my understanding at this point is that they asked nicely for the documents back many Mm. times, and he didn't comply. And so they they went and did this. Are they, it it doesn't, there's there's not been any um, indication so far that the documents are actually so important that right, he can actually like launch nuclear weapons yeah. based on having the... Co- like, that has been overstated uh, by the media, not by anyone in law enforcement. In fact, the FBI, law enforcement, Merrick Garland, no one has made any claims that these are particularly important documents. Yeah, it's, it's documents. thirsty,
1: hopeful Democrats saying, is there nuclear codes right. in there? Are there nuclear codes? Exactly. Yeah. And so- even if there were, I mean, that's the catch-22 all of this. The more important the information allegedly is that he has, the more negligent the FBI seems for allowing him to keep it for as long as he did. Right. right? So if there were nuclear cl- codes people thought were in his possession one would presume that they change that there's a rotating change on these codes regardless right. and that it would be negligent on the behalf of trump and look bad optically for trump but wouldn't actually have put national security at jeopardy so it's like catch-22 either was really really important and everyone's kind of on the hook for letting it go on this long or it wasn't that big a deal and they have taken this unprecedented action for not
0: for for what is still in the category of what I've described as procedural crimes mm-hmm. still crimes mm-hmm. still against the law against laws that Donald Trump <laughs> assigned himself or made stronger based on you know his own desire to persecute his enemies but still not a not a a, a kind of crime that law enforcement can always get you on because there's so many of these kinds of procedural yeah. crimes which is not to say that Donald Trump should be able to get away with it where no one else can't. I find it weird the idea that the president should be, should, should be under, um, sh- should have a freer hand than your average citizen who could easily get entrapped in these kinds of circumstances. So I do get that. On the other hand, it does not actually seem sort of warranted by any legitimate national security purpose or anything so far based on what yeah. we know and that could change. But th- this doesn't seem to be the crisis um, necessitating this kind of, of right. action. And, and I have to think that uh, the, the, the FBI has not, uh, there's this, they were so naive about doing this, because they said, oh, OK, well, we'll do it when he's not there. Well, will hardly even be a big deal. Will anyone even care? But that was their thing. <laughs> that is so naive, to think that, yeah, that, that, that that does. the Trump does, foghorn wasn't going to go off. Right, that that colors kind of all of their judgment. So th- they thought this was important, but they also thought no one would care. It's it's very.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, at a certain point, if you think it's warranted, mm. um, to to do the, the the search, then there's no kind of containing this. Mm. If you got to do it, you got to do it. You try to do it as unobtrusively as possible. You can imagine a world where they did it while Trump was home and Barron was on the Xbox, and there was a whole added part to this dialogue. that's, I can't believe you intruded on my family and the pr- privacy of my wife when she was in the back. You know, you can imagine it being worse, right. a more inflammatory than the way they handle it. All they can do is kind of minimize and contain. And you know, I think that they probably did as best that they could. The fundamental issue is going to be when it comes down down to in public opinion is going to be whether or not whatever they find mm-hmm. or thought they were going to find justified this kind of moment. Yeah. And I wonder what you make of that last point there uh, about looking for Russiagate-related documents. Does this feel to you a little bit like there's there's always going to be a Russiagate angle for Maybe, although
0: I honestly, uh, that might be hope uh, wishful or hopeful thinking mm-hmm. on, on the Republican side. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of conservative pundits, uh, I'm not among them at all, are trying to spin this as oh, this is good for Trump because this is making him more sympathetic or something mm-hmm. or more back in the news which is good for him okay look maybe it's good for him it's clearly not good for the GOP if you look at now what we were talking about this a little before we started recording I was talking about it using expletives because it's so <laughs> frustrating but the what was looking like a Republican blowing out the Democrats in November is now looking uh, a lot worse um, I, I think they'll still take the house because they'd have to it had to be a calamity for Republicans not to take the house back but the Senate is looking pretty lost um, uh, in it, for a variety of reasons, for having candidates that are look just too in too much in the Trump mold in Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, et cetera, uh, candidates who are like more Trumpy than Trump, who are very very in that MAGA mode. And I look, I get that a lot of and conservatives love Trump, Republicans love Trump broadly, but there's not enough of, of the pro-Trump contingent to win elections. We saw that last time. Uh, what you need is to attract independent, moderate voters, former Democrats who are tired of Democratic policies and are frustrated with a lot of Democratic things. And we know there are vo- voters out there like that. Youngkin showed that model. Yeah. But instead of courting those people, the GOP is like is, is putting Trump center stage yeah. again. And that's just a losing, it's a losing formula. I don't know how many more times it has to be demonstrated to be a losing formula. Well,
1: Robbie, Youngkin showed that model, but Mon- Youngkin also really leaned into a lot of the discourse around Masking and what was being taught in schools, and you can say that that's legitimate. I'm not really trying to dispute that right now, but that is kind of a character of more cultural attack that people, at least you know, Democrats and leftists would maybe characterize as more Trumpian. So I i would love to get a little bit more granular about what we mean by Trump versus not Trump, because if you look at a, a, a candidate like Dr. Oz, I would argue his issue is. Not that he's Trumpian insofar as he's like a television personality and that he's a famous person, but that he, he lacks substance, that he's not from the state. That states I mean, Dr. Oz is just, is just a about.
0: terrible, is a terrible candidate. Right, so
1: that, that's the thing. I'd like to disaggregate that a little bit because the the, the mantra on the left is that, oh, uh, Republicans, I'm kind of jealous of the fact that no matter what, their people fall in line and as long as they make it through, you know, whoever makes it through the primary is going to get the Republican votes in the general election, whereas on the left, there's this feeling that there's too much quote-unquote purity and that leftists will just effect and vote for the Green Party and all these other kinds of things. So it does seem to me that, you know, to the extent that Republicans aren't lining up behind certain of these candidates or might not line up behind a, like a Dr. Oz style figure, despite pushing the more Trumpian figure like a Kerry Lake through in the primary election context, it might be because of some of these other intangibles where people just aren't showing up in some of these races. I,
0: I think it's that Republicans need all the Republicans mm-hmm. to vote for the Republican. And then they also need um, a couple you know, Democratic moms who are really mad at their school board mm-hmm. um, or, or, or a small business owner or something who is really mad about co- – mm-hmm. they need enough of those people mm-hmm. or somebody who, you know, went down a critical race theory Twitter mm-hmm. thread or something. And all the Republicans and those people, it's a win. Mm-hmm. It's a, and it can be a big win. That's a large contingent of people. Sure. But those people in the second category, the, the mom who's mad at her school board, etc., there, they can be scared away from the GOP by I think some of the Dobbs stuff, mm. um, and and by they don't like Trump himself. Trump himself is not popular with these people. Do
1: you think that's true of like a DeSantis style character? Um, I, I think because he's very Trumpian. He hits all of those cultural points, but yeah. people are framing him like he is attractive to the more moderate v- uh, voter. That he is the Trump light. That's the perfect mix of all of the things.
0: I think we'll have to see. He's not a. I mean, the election stuff. He's largely stayed away from without offending Trump in any way. The, I mean, the election stuff's a big. Th- that is that is toxic, clearly, to um, the kind of voters the GOP needs to court, and that's a big part of it. And just kind of the weird stuff. I don't know. He's he, DeSantis is. Um, has not, I, I think, firm, has not committed him. He, he, he hasn't offended Trump voters at all yet, mm-hmm. which is smart, mm-hmm. uh, but he might still be attractive enough to independent voters. I'm honestly not sure yet, mm-hmm. but I know that Youngkin clearly was. In Arizona, they could have had their sitting governor, Doug mm-hmm. Ducey, who's a, I mean, you would not classify him as a moderate, but is temperamentally moderate and is not mm-hmm. mag on election stuff and all those things. He could have been, a, I think, a very compelling general election candidate, mm-hmm. said they have Blake Masters, who, like, began his first campaign ad with, I believe Donald Trump won the last election. Mm. Mm. Why? It's stupid. Yeah. It's really stupid. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to your radar next, Brianna. I have a feeling I'm going to disagree with it. I mean, we're going <laughs> to we're gonna, we're going to get into it. It's always a pleasure. Stay tuned.
1: Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, as folks probably know by now, Jill Biden announced that she has COVID this week, just a few weeks after President Joe Biden recovered from not one but two bouts of COVID this summer. Predictably, many folks who are critical of the CDC's recommendations around the COVID pandemic are using this as an opportunity to sharpen their criticisms and with good reason. Both Bidens are double vaxxed and boosted, per CDC recommendations. And many conservatives have pointed out that, according to the original CDC messaging surrounding vaccines, they shouldn't have gotten COVID at all. Of course, this is a little unfair. Even the original guidance around the vaccines uh, designed to attack the first variant acknowledged that transmission was possible between vaccinated people. The scientific opinion was only that the vaccine made COVID unlikely to spread. And in fairness, it was difficult to predict how effective the vaccines would be against new strains of the virus that developed around the fall of last year and over the summer. Still, The problem was not the science per se, but the intense moralizing around the social benefit of vaccination, as well as the certainty with which the efficiency and efficacy of the vaccine was pitched.
2: We're not in a position where we think that any virus, including the Delta virus, which is much more transmissible and more deadly in terms of non-vaccinated people, the the, the, the various shots that people are getting now Cover that, you're okay. You're You're not gonna get COVID if you have these vaccinations.
1: Public policy was apparently to shame vaccine skeptics into getting the jab by arguing that doing so could save grandma. Even if you don't think of yourself, said the messaging, think of the community. Think of how selfish it is to set yourself up to be a vector for a virus that might not kill you, but could seriously injure an older or immunocompromised loved one. Indeed, this messaging was crucial at the time because it was the linchpin for vaccine mandates. If vaccines only protected the vaccinated, then there was no real public health rationale behind forcing vaccine-hesitant people to get the shot. The logic of mandates hinged on notions of community responsibility, of herd immunity. In fairness, many people who engaged in this moralizing did so in good faith. It seems that the COVID vaccines were much more effective against the original strains of COVID for which they were developed. Even if you didn't support mandates from a civil liberties perspective, the medical rationale for them was at least pretty sound at the time. But here comes the problem. When the new strains proved the vaccines to be relatively ineffective at lowering transmission rates, though they, of course, still largely protect the vaccinated from hospitalization and death, CDC messaging was not quick enough to acknowledge that vaccine mandates no longer made sense. That combined with some sometimes smug moralizing about the vaccines made for a literally deadly combination. Liberals had engaged in a full force campaign to not just persuade skeptical folks who had concerns about how quickly vaccines have been developed, reports of cardiac issues in younger male patients, irregular periods in women, and the exploitative nature of the for-profit pharmaceutical industry, but to stigmatize vaccine skeptics as ignorant rubes who believed so-called horse dewormer was an adequate medical intervention. Now, of course, many elite conservatives capitalized on sincere anx- anxieties and intentionally fomented confusion about what worked and what didn't but elite liberals also played into this misinformation campaign remember when sanjay gupta cnn's chief medical correspondent sat down with popular podcaster joe rogan to discuss COVID at the end of 2021 well the two had a productive meaning of the minds during their three-hour conversation during which Rogan asked Sanjay why people should get vaccinated if some people could carry viral loads similar to unvaccinated people. Sanjay explained that at the time, vaccinated people were eight times less likely to get infected in the first place and also had lower viral loads, meaning that they were infectious for shorter periods of time and less likely to spread the virus. It was a productive explanation. Gupta went on then to admit that CNN had lied in a story that had reported Rogan as taking a horse D warmer He apologized, acknowledging that even if ivermectin was not medically indicated for COVID, it was in fact medicine designed for humans and not just equines. (laughs) But afterward, when Sanjay returned to his CNN stomping grounds, he was browbeat by Don Lemon into taking back his apology for characterizing the ivermectin Rogan took as a horse dewormer.
2: Ivermectin is a drug that is commonly used as a horse dewormer. So it is not a lie to say that the drug is used as a horse dewormer. I, I, I think that's important and it is not approved for COVID. Correct? That's right. That's correct. It, it, it is not approved for COVID and you're right. I mean, the FDA even put out a, a statement saying, you know, basically reminding people, it was a strange sort of message from the FDA, but that said, you're not a horse, you're not a cow, stop taking this stuff is essentially what they said, referring to ivermectin. Now, I think what, what Joe's point that is it's been approved is for humans, and, but not necessarily for COVID, right? Yeah, that's correct.
1: So much for all that goodwill and understanding that Sanjay Gupta and Joe Rogan were able to come to. Now look, it was possible to say that ivermectin hadn't been proven effective as a COVID treatment while also not pretending that Rogan was literally stealing medicine from his horse. (laughs) Just like it was possible to address people's concerns about vaccine safety and efficacy without engaging in a shaming campaign that ultimately caused people to be skeptical of the underlying science and of the CDC as an institution. It was possible to protect stockpiles of masks for medical practitioners early in the crisis when these masks were in short supply without lying about whether masks were effective or about whether COVID was airborne. Do do you remember this? I liked this March 2020 article that summarized the controversy at the time. It reads Amid the hourly updates on the new coronavirus, a single calming fact stands out a particle of happy news hanging in a cloud of dread. The germ that causes COVID 19 may be responsible for a terrifying public health disaster, but hallelujah, thank the Lord, at least it isn't airborne. This message is now dogma for news outlets and public officials. They impress on us that droplets laced with the new coronavirus don't remain aloft for long, that they only sail for six feet at the most before they fall onto the ground that's why we were told that soap and water are the best protections one can find the virus isn't airborne so keep washing when you can the virus isn't airborne so you'd be wise to trade your grubby handshake for an elbow bump the virus isn't airborne so don't forget to keep your fingers off your face yikes (laughs) i mean of course we know now that the virus is airborne and we're encouraged to mask But now that we have access to high-quality masks, we're confronting yet another piece of scientific inexactitude. Masks were pushed indiscriminately, as though they were all evenly effective. But that's not true. N95 or KN95s are 48% more effective than surgical or cloth masks. Wearing an N95 or KN95 mask reduces the odds of testing positive for COVID by 83%. That's compared with 66% for surgical masks and 56% for cloth masks. To be clear, all masks reduce the risk of spreading or catching COVID, but the shifting goalposts here have caused, again, some to give up on masks altogether, citing studies about high transmission rates in counties with mask mandates that didn't actually track whether high-quality masks or low-quality masks were even used. And it's caused caused others to put misplaced faith in lower quality masks that simply aren't fully up to the task. Even if you reject mask mandates, we can learn a lot from how well masks work from tracking infection rates in areas where mandates were implemented. Infections, for example, were cut in half in Boston schools that kept mask mandates compared to schools that did not. Even though the schools that kept masks were higher risk schools than the comparison group. Lifting mask mandates led to nearly 20,000 additional missed school days. And worst of all, the politicization of mask and vaccine mandates has meant that other interventions that are extremely effective at stopping the spread of COVID, like installing HVAC systems, have been underemphasized. According to a recent Time Magazine article, despite the fact that HVAC systems are effective, And don't rely on mandates of any kind. Quote In a national survey of 420 public schools, only 39% reported replacing or upgrading school HVAC systems, and 28% reported using portable air filters. Meanwhile, a school in Oklahoma just closed two weeks into the school year after 20% of students and 50% of staff tested positive for COVID. But there's another reason for confusing mass guidance uh, besides bad CDC messaging. According to a piece written in conjunction with the Daily Poster, quote, The end of school masking is also in part due to a campaign by right-wing business interests, including the dark money network of oil billionaire Charles Koch, to keep the country open for the sake of maintaining corporate profits. These interests have been meddling in the education debate, first pushing to reopen schools and then fighting in-school safety measures, even as COVID case numbers were rising and children were ending up in hospitals. For nearly two years, these groups have been promoting questionable science and creating wedges between parents, teachers, and administrators in order to get America back to work, even at the risk of the nation's children. Now, your interests and Charles Koch's interests may actually, in fact, align. Maybe you want your kid back in school because you can't afford to, say, stay home from work. And America is unique among affluent nations in its failure to provide adequate childcare support. But it's important to realize that those interests could shift. Your interests could shift. Are COVID skeptics making a short-term bargain that will bite them in the long term as the government withdraws support to manage a pandemic that doesn't seem to be going anywhere? Now, let's come back to the Bidens. Many pointed out that Biden's COVID recurrence might not be a recurrence at all, that he might be sick from his first infection, and that he was wrong to return to work 10 days after testing positive, per the CDC guidance, that the CDC guidance is woefully inadequate and is in fact driven by an employer's desire to get workers back to work rather than public health interests. We are a country without paid sick leave and with horrible child care options for families whose children are home ill. Biden's recurring COVID modeled exactly why these recommendations, driven by business interests and not the public interests, are so bad. While he was still recovering, Biden tweeted out pictures of himself maskless and working, even though the science says that powering through COVID extends your recovery time. And even though someone had to be in the room with him to get that picture of an unmasked COVID positive president. Biden later ditched a mask at a public meeting seven days after his diagnosis. How can the CDC expect Americans to comply with medical guidance if it can't get the chief executive to do the same? Meanwhile, Biden is getting away with completely abdicating his responsibility for the crisis. The Biden administration announced that it would stop buying COVID-19 vaccines, treatments, and tests, even as 100 million people are expected to get infected this fall. Establishment liberals interested in protecting Biden's reputation aren't complaining. He can do no wrong to them. And conservatives who have been in some ways politicized against any and all COVID interventions, even those that don't implicate mandates of any kind, seem indifferent to the fact that the government is no longer going to pay for the heavy cost of contracting COVID and lesser but still considerable cost of testing for it. Whoever is in power has an obvious interest in not testing COVID. If you don't test, you can't prove there's a problem and you don't have to take responsibility. And I got to say, it's deeply frustrating to me that on the score, where conservative critics should be demanding more from Biden, they're complicit in letting him off the hook. And here's what he should be on the hook for. More people have died on Biden's watch than Trump's, Control for time, even though Biden had the advantage of vaccines. And while we have been covering the horrific car crash caused by a traveling nurse last week, do keep in mind you're much more likely to die of COVID than a car wreck. In 2021 an average of 118 people died per day from traffic accidents and the second week of August 491 people died on average per day. The New York Times has reported 7,400 COVID deaths in the first half of August. And despite edgy headlines, mandates have largely gone the way of the dinosaur. According to that article written in collaboration with The Daily Poster, quote, at the end of last month, the CDC released new guidance on wearing masks, significantly easing recommendations for most of the country, including in schools. In response to the CDC's new rules, many blue states that still mandated masks in schools announced they would end the requirement, including New York, California, Oregon, and Washington. Now, the only state that's not planning to end its school mask mandate by mid-March is Hawaii. The American Medical Association has said one thing, the CDC has said another, and it's causing mass confusion. More than half of teachers are considering leaving their jobs over pandemic-related stress, and with half of that Oklahoma school staff out with COVID, who can blame them? Mask use is down, testing is down, they're charging for vaccines, and the government has gotten permission from you to not even try to help. If you want your kids' schools to stay open, for ventilators to be installed, and to have the option to stay home with your kid if they're sick, you're going to have to fight for it because Biden has given up. You're on your own. That, what, that, uh, what's that saying? <laughs> be careful what you wish for? We've wished for this. Now what are you going to do about it?
0: Oh, well, Brianna. <laughs> Brianna. Brianna, Brianna, Brianna.
1: Someone has thoughts and feelings. Hit me, Robbie. Do you think...
0: That I am opposed to mass mandates and vaccine mandates because Charles Koch like forces me to or something.
3: No, that's I think the that, point
0: of this that sticks out to me no, because I, think, we, I hear this from David Sirota a lot, the Daily Post or whatever. Look. Just as there are good faith people on the left in progressive circles whose policies I disagree with, and they get money, they have donors, they have supporters, it doesn't mean it's all some nefarious dark money plot just like Soros supporting criminal justice reform. It's like a dark money. People give money to causes they like. I would advocate for these things. Right In full disclosure, Reason Magazine, where I also work, has in the past gotten some money from the Koch Foundation. But I would advocate these things regardless, it it attracts that financial support because ideologically, I feel that way.
1: So the way that these things work, and Robbie, you are a man of enormous fortitude, and I believe that you are obviously always resistant to advertising or suggestion of any kind. So this is not about you, I fully believe that you support uh, or you reject mask mandates out of libertarian principles and because you also find it to be deeply uncomfortable to wear a mask, respect. However, I think the reality is that again, like I said in the in the in the radar Your interest may just happen to align with the Koch brothers, but we should be clear that the reason why a lot of this messaging is being pushed in a very purposeful way with money behind it is because it's in the interest of the business community to open up. And you might be thinking, well, I have a small business. I have a business. I also want to open up because I need to earn money. But the alternative way to handle this is to say, okay, you get sick leave. You get the kind of rent support uh, that existed for a brief period of time during COVID and all these other kind of interventions. I think a lot of us have accepted, okay, we're opened up now, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be having a certain kind of conversation about support to get ventilation in buildings that but are the necessary, schools, especially the schools. schools
0: got billions of dollars
3: from yeah. the federal government, so why billions. Is that,
1: so this is the question, Robbie. You, you should be aligned with me on this. Why has that money not been put to in, in, installing more of these HVAC systems in schools? And why, if the right is so concerned, fine, reasonably so, about the mandates in the past. We're still even on the show constantly having conversations about mandates that have largely gone the way of the dinosaur. I don't, I don't begrudge mm-hmm. anybody being upset about the mandates. I personally have, as a libertarian socialist, would prefer not to have things mandated. I would prefer we have a conversation about carrots rather than sticks. And I believe we could have done a lot more as a country to incentivize people to voluntarily do a lot of these things as opposed to mandating them. However, now we're in that space by default, because the mandates are gone. So I'm focused on carrots. Not in
0: Washington, D.C. And they and are I, staying in Washington, D.C., as the, far as I can tell. New yeah, York that, City that schools as York, s- well. The
1: D.C. schools are, are an anomaly. We talked about that earlier this week, I think. But that that being the case, what are the carrots? And one of the biggest carrots, it seems to me, that could be holding Biden accountable and pushing him not to pull back a lot of the supporters that do exist, should be the Republican Party, who is the only party that is going to be critical of Joe Biden because the Democrats are locked up with everything that he does. But don't you
0: have to concede that, okay, just focusing on the schools, the other side of this debate was totally, the the teachers' unions, do you want to talk about dark money interests, took the most maximal, the schools should never reopen until we essentially have COVID zero, was close to what Randy Weingarten argued multiple times. That's fine, Roddy.
1: The schools are open now.
0: Yeah. So the schools are open now. Because they lost that fight after a brutal two-year-long Congratulations. battle. Yeah. The schools
1: are open now. Now, do you want to be all on your own? Do you want it to be the wild, wild west? Do you want your school to have to shut down because there's no teachers left to teach them? Or do you want to be talking proactively about how to make our communities better instead of fighting these culture war battles?
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Open. Those billions Fine. of dollars that they got should be spent we on the be, better look, air quality. If, if, if
1: every article, if every news segment that is about mandate this and mandate that was about HVAC systems... And air ventilations, yeah. and how to how to pass out free, highly effective KN95 masks to people who want to use them, and educating people about how effective they really are, and stopping the spread of transmission. Maybe we can keep schools open because teachers. I won't be support getting sick, all measures that are
0: non-coercive, sick. like making the the air quality better, etc. Masks for those who want them, not requiring it. Tests for though, in some circumstances,
1: that's all The free all fine. Biden tests, I thought, were one of the best things that he did. Being mm-hmm. able to log on, and people, if you don't know should know that you can go to these government websites and have COVID tests sent routinely to your house. And it is it is helpful. But but that's, that's the only thing. And it is frustrating. I took to a man. test
0: before I re- re- rejoined you here in studio. I'm Several so, of them, I'm so, many of them.
1: I'm so grateful, just Robbie. Looking at, just looking
0: out for you, Brianna. Looking
1: out for the community. And that's the <laughs> approach I think we all got to be taking now that we're left on our own.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much, Brianna. And we'll have more Rising right after this.
1: Liz Cheney's comparison of herself to Abe Lincoln was shot down by the nation's John Nichols, who blasted Cheney for being pro-abortion, anti-labor, lying about former President Obama and Vice President Harris, attacking progressives Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, defending the Iraq War, big oil, and backing Trump in 2016 and 2020, and backing former President Trump's agenda 93% of the time, saying that it is Absurd to imagine herself as Lincoln Ask.
0: And yesterday we discussed a new political action committee that Cheney was cooking up following her primary loss in Wyoming. Business Insider confirmed that Cheney did, in fact, convert her House Campaign Finance Committee to a leadership pack named The Great Task, according to a Federal Election Commission filing. Cheney spokeswoman told Politico Wednesday that Cheney, quote, will be launching an organization to educate the American people about the ongoing threat to our republic and to mobilize a unified effort to oppose any Donald Trump campaign for
1: president. Trump took to Truth Social to blast the media that, quote, continues to push crazy Liz Cheney and the fact that, despite losing her race to a far superior candidate by an unprecedented 40 points, she has a bright future. Really? I don't think so, but perhaps that's why we call it fake news. Mm. I I heard that in... um, uh, that's what's why they call it the blues. What? <laughs> like Elton John. That's why they call no, it fake news. <laughs> too too young, too young for that deep cut. But look, okay. So <laughs> I, I hate to I hate to be agreeing with with Donald Trump, but it is a little bleak to think that she has a yeah. political.
0: Oh, watch uh, it! You're gonna have people here. coming after you on Twitter again.
1: <laughs> I know that is, <laughs> that is my life. Uh, Let
0: me assure everyone who's been yelling at <laughs> Brianna lately that she is not secretly part of the right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, you know. I, the, the, the people here in this context will think that's hilarious. that Anyone would think that of me. But look, her political instincts here, the great task... Yeah. The great task, that's what really inspires me, the idea that I have a really, really big chore ahead of me. But it seems like following her political career is going to be the chore that at least those of us in the media field are going to be tasked with for the next year year or two.
0: Yeah, look, I've, I've said this uh, before, and it, it's, it's how I feel about the issue. I also don't agree with um, most of those things. Um, you read off Liz Cheney does not represent a version of the Republican Party that I have much affection for. I oppose neoconservatism, hawkishness. Um, honestly, some of the social conservatives, conservatism. She, she represented at the time, her family represented, yeah. um, despite uh, despite her father being for same-sex marriage and Liz Cheney initially being for it. Her sister is a lesbian in a lesbian relationship, a lesbian marriage, and then she flip-flopped on that to win voters, and it was very, like, embarrassing, humiliating. So look, I'm not the biggest Liz Cheney fan. At the same time, it is clear she is being thrown out of the party, not for any of her political stances mm-hmm. whatsoever, solely because she crossed Trump and made it her entire personality.
1: Well, is that? let's interrogate that just a little bit because you did just list something that is really core to what that kind of populist right aspect of the party that's surging right now cares about which is this anti-intervention war is bad you know use our resources to help people here at home america first mentality mm-hmm. and she is someone who has cheerled all of our frolics and detours abroad, and torture defended torture defended torture who and and to your point about hypocrisy you know Someone pointed out that you know her father presided over the effective stealing of an election in 20 in the year 2000 and a lot of people uh, yeah, like was a little eyes. different it was different. But that people don't see her as being the mm-hmm. kind of honest actor that whatever you think about Trump and that wing of the party people perceive them as being blunt saying what they really feel there's no filter on these truth Uh, social posts, and do you think that actually that's part of it? That's part of what's going on with Liz Cheney, is that she's not just being rejected for uh, not supporting Trump. But also because she doesn't even capture any of the other parts of the Zeitgeist.
0: No, I think she's being rejected. I wish it <laughs> were the case that she was being rejected for her bad ideas, but that's not the case. Hmm. She could have, if she had not said anything, critic or, or done what everyone else did in the wake of January 6th, condemnation, and then moves on, and then goes back to just being fine with Trump, like everyone else in the Republican Party, virtually everyone else. Um, she would, and not voted for impeachment. She would have been fine. It doesn't. Her differences didn't matter. She won. Those differences were true. I mean, the populist right was as. Uh, you know, surging as much as it is now for the entirety of Trump's presidency, when she mm-hmm. voted with him 93% mm-hmm. of the time, and won by whatever 70% or whatever her last primary, if she even faced, was she mm-hmm. was reelected by? She had no opposition, uh, it, so it's really it's really just about Trump. And look, like I said in our in our top of the show. I think that's an unhealthy tendency in the Republican Party, if we're trying to grow the party and win these voters, that the Republican Party needs to win elections. Just the Trump contingent, the Trump coalition, is not enough. And the, the, the new right, the Trump base, the Republican Party has to understand that if you get every, everybody who votes Republican together, it doesn't add up to enough people. Even, even given the advantages, frankly, the, the electoral college system gives to Republicans, it's not enough people. So you have to win other people, and this kind of just just unpersoning of people who are critical of Trump is not useful at the end of the day. If it's just gonna be Liz Cheney, that's fine, because again, her views, I agree, are very bad. And are not the direction the party should move. But I don't think that's actually what it was about.
1: Yeah, I mean, fair enough. But even in your own example, you pointed out that other people had been critical of Trump, mm. closer to 1-6, and they just set their criticisms and moved on, said, oh no, Biden really did win the election and moved on. And that is a little bit more than just a willingness or unwillingness to acknowledge that Biden won the election duly. It is the Uh, Way that you voted on 1-6, voted Mm -hmm. for impeachment, and also her making that her whole shtick for the last Mm -hmm. 18 months or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting.
0: Well, Tucker Carlson has weighed in as well, saying this on Fox News yesterday.
1: I must say, I feel sorry for
0: It turns out American voters are harder to deal with than Iraqi civilians. You can't just drone them to death. (laughs) You have to obey them. Oh, it's so great. This is Liz Cheney Day in my house. Victor Davis Hanson, great to see you. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, look, that's a fair point. I think her policies are uh, to the extent she represents the neoconservative wing of the Republican Party and their disastrous foreign policy adventurism. And I think it's fair to represent her that way. She's yeah. part of a political dynasty who is very responsible for those policies. Those policies were very bad. I was critical of them at the time, critical of them now. So are you. So are, you know, the, the kind of. This is actually an area of, of overlap. It's, it's The reason we talk about foreign policy a lot on the show is progressives, yeah. libertarians, and the new right all kind of opposing what was, what was a, the main thrust of the Republican Party for the aughts, but also the Democratic Party as well. And, it was a bipartisan, yep. neoconservative regime under people like George Bush and Hillary Clinton, etc., uh, one that even, you know, it w- was was part of then Barack Obama and Donald Trump, even though they had spoke against both of them when they were running for president, right. the need to break with that foreign policy consensus, they didn't. They got sucked back into it. So, so I, I agree. And it is, again, it's good to the extent that voters are rising up to say no more of this policy. And I think they are. The voters never supported these policies the way right. the establishment thought they did. So that is a, that's a good, healthy direction policy-wise for us to move, but the, the Trump loyal personality part of it, I don't like it, and I actually think it's a political loser.
1: Well, there's only one place for Liz Cheney to go now, which is the Democratic Party. And I will say to the extent that people are concerned about this realignment and you know the move toward fascism, or however it's described in the most uh, extreme terms on MSNBC, the number one thing you could do to I encourage that the desire of independent voters who are disaffected and trying to figure out what to do because they're frustrated with two corporate parties the number one way that Democrats can give a big win to the populist right is to hire Liz Cheney and back <laughs> her as a Democratic candidate for office one day either of those things if I see her on MSNBC if I see her you're gonna on a see Democratic her on MSNBC
0: ballot, you're gonna see her there
1: that's that's Democrats signing their own death warrant.
0: Yeah, I mean, they, but the temptation, well, and Democrats are different, the the Democratic friendly media just has, does not have, I mean, this is true of both uh, uh, liberal media and conservative media, is that their incentives are not always in the best interests of their political coalitions, right? It, it, yes. It is in MSNBC's best interest, perhaps, to put Liz Cheney on because they're mm. resistance-loving. Well, I don't know. They're resistance-loving viewers. Look at
1: Tucker. His is the most, most popular yeah. news show on television, yeah. and he's sitting there saying what people want to hear and what people believe. I can't imagine who on CNN or MSNBC would make that kind of a statement, would bring that kind of energy. Oh, maybe, no one. Maybe no one. Mehdi Hassan. Yeah. But I can't think of any. But maybe the they're thinking
0: all that. the people who feel that way are already watching Fox. We've they've lost why. them to Fox, so you need more of the you need more pro Liz Cheney pro Liz Cheney people are more likely to be watching MSNBC MSNBC and CNN at this yeah, point. Yeah, the
1: the winnowing world of pro Liz Cheney people. The, the, yeah, like all six of them. Pro Liz Cheney, they're literally already panelists at MSNBC.
0: Then give her a CNN <laughs> Plus show, maybe. Right. Maybe that's uh, maybe right. that's where her her future lies. All right, we'll have more rising right after this.
1: President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law yesterday, scoring a win for the Democrats ahead of midterm elections. Here's a bit of what he said following the signing.
2: We look back, we look forward, and today, today offers further proof that the soul of America is vibrant, the future of America is bright, and the promise of America is real and just beginning.
0: After months of negotiations, the Inflation Reduction Act is law, and it intends to address the climate crisis, lower drug costs, and reform taxes. But will it do all that, plus curb skyrocketing inflation? Here to discuss are Pavlina Chernova, an associate professor of economics at Bard College, and Stephen Moore, who's a fellow at the Heritage Foundation and former Trump economic advisor. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Pavlina, I'll start with you. What do you think, if you do think, that this bill is going to live up to its name and reduce inflation, uh, what components of it are going to address that?
4: Yeah, you got to look at it first as a totality and then the specific components. The way that this bill is drafted and proposed and scored, it is supposed to reduce the deficit. If it does that, that will be a drag on the economy and it will reduce inflation. These would be the macro forces that will tame inflationary pressures. But what most people actually are looking at are the components, what are we spending on? And what the bill does is actually make some targeted investments in areas that have been uh, the primary causes, both of inflation, but also of the biggest expenses that uh, households um, have. So as we know, the primary contributor to inflation has been energy. And so the bill actually makes new investments in the energy sector to alleviate those pressures. And also it uh, extends the Affordable Care Act um, and uh, prevents price increases as well as reduces drug costs. So it does take important steps in these directions. I don't think we're going to see overnight some major uh, impact on inflation, but we're going in the right direction.
1: So, Stephen, you know, deficit reduction, that's something that Republicans have focused on for a long time. This bill does that. Um, It also has these other interventions that are supposed to bring down the costs of energy. Uh, You know, how are you interpreting uh, this bill and what alternative interventions might you offer in this moment from a conservative perspective?
2: Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is a dreadful bill. I don't think there's anything in this bill that any conservative free market person could possibly support. You know, when I worked for the Trump administration, one of our highest priorities was to make America energy independent. And we had done that with the kind of all-in energy policy that said, we're gonna use our oil, our gas, our coal, our nuclear power, and when appropriate, uh, green energy. And it's amazing, in 18 months, we've gone from a country that was energy independent to a country now that is reliant on Russia and. Iran and Saudi Arabia for our energy. It's, it's actually a disgrace. And right now you've got, you know, China that's building uh, 40 massive new coal plants. They'll be producing five times as much coal as the United States in the next five years if we don't do something to uh, bull, you know, build up our, our uh, energy resources. On inflation, I guess I'm with the 85% of Americans who believe this will have e- either no impact or make it worse. I, I think it will probably make inflation worse for two reasons. One is if you increase government spending by $750 billion, that obviously makes inflation worse because you're just putting more and more uh, money into the economy. Um, And then, of course, the tax increases increase inflation as well because if you tax businesses more, they have to raise their prices to accommodate those higher taxes. So I I wish this hadn't happened. I think uh, if Republicans take over Congress, in 2023, they should try to repeal as much of this bill as possible.
1: Pablina, how do you respond to those criticisms? Is um, spending more automatically going to drive up inflation? And what do you make of the kind of disinterest from conservatives in the deficit reduction after so many years of really stressing that as core to their principles? Does that strike you as being at all in bad faith?
4: oh absolutely and also we have some major components here that are coveted by the conservatives i mean we are uh basically uh increasing energy production fo- from the fossil fuel industry here in a very aggressive way we are permitting um, uh, 40 million acres of uh, offshore public land for development. I mean, this should be something that will be celebrated that conservatives have asked for, for such a long time. And so, you know, this bill really threads that needle very carefully between what progressives have wanted, which is investment in climate, and which is where, you know, I would say the future is. I mean, China and other countries are certainly outpacing American investment in green technology, but we are also actually recognizing that the global energy market is rather fixed There are three major producers of uh, energy, of oil, and the United States is investing in fossil fuel production in the near term as a priority, mind you, right? We are actually appropriating or giving these permits before we can actually do offshore energy, clean energy development. So listen, it's a uh, the focus is on energy, clearly. And if we transition to uh, clean, sustainable domestic mm-hmm. energy, that will be the long-term kind of security that we have that we, these price spikes do not periodically occur every decade or so.
0: Hmm. Stephen, what do you, uh, how would you respond to the criticism that, you know, I I think, frankly, is a fair one sometimes at Republicans who, you know, I wish they would, they talk a a game, I remember Tea Party Republicans talk about, you know, lowering spending, lowering taxes, bringing the deficit under control, but then it seems to balloon, uh, you know, under each new administration, uh, more government spending than the last, regardless of who's in charge. Maybe Democrats make no illusions about getting the Spending under control, but Republicans claim to, and then and then don't succeed at that.
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that it's probably hard to think of any president, maybe in American history, has been more fiscally reckless than Joe Biden. Let's let's um, add it up. We we started out with a 1.9 trillion dollar uh, blue state bailout bill back in the first months of. Trump, uh, Biden's presidency. Remember that? That was $1.9 trillion. And then we spent $1.1 trillion on a Green Energy, uh, Green New Deal bill back at the end of last year. Then they passed a $250 billion corporate welfare bill about uh, three weeks ago. And by the way, Republicans did vote for some of this stuff. And then you now you have another $700 billion spending bill. So add that up. And it's almost hard to believe that this president has spent $4 trillion in 1920 months in office. I mean, I didn't think that was possible. Uh, we will spend decades and decades undoing the fiscal ruin that this is causing our country. Um, we would have to, by the way, that $4 trillion adjusted for inflation is as much as we spent to fight uh, and win World War II. So it's a joke when Joe Biden says, I'm being fiscally responsible here, when we've increased our national debt by over three and a half trillion dollars in just 18 months. Um, Now, look, Republicans aren't, (laughs) I'm not here to defend the Republicans. They like to spend money and play Santa Claus too. Uh, But the one thing we can't be doing is raising taxes. That, I mean, history shows that raising taxes on our businesses will hurt the economy. One of the reasons, you know, I was one of the architects of the Trump tax plan, which was an incredible success, where we reduced our tax rates and brought trillions of dollars of capital back to the United States. That's how we built the best economy in American history vir- virtually um, by the end of 2019 through tax cuts, deregulation, uh, and, uh, and uh, better trade deals with China. I think we're moving in the wrong direction here. And my warning to people is the biggest winners of these Biden policies clearly have been our two biggest enemies, China and Russia, who are laughing behind our
1: back. So, Stephen, just a, a few points there. Trump, yep. Trump oversaw a $7.8 trillion dollar rise in the deficit. That was mm-hmm. historic and was described as reaching World War II levels of deficit spending, mm-hmm. okay? And much of that spending wasn't even geared toward getting the economy going the way that Biden has had to, and Trump obviously also had to deal with this COVID crisis, but for tax breaks from the more affluent part of the country, and we saw that also in his business tax policy, where... Yeah. It, he continued a trend that's been happening that can't just be attributed to donald trump but what we're seeing is that the gap between the very rich and the very poor ceo pay versus worker pay has exploded over recent years and billionaires have gained more money and put more money in their pocket during the covid pandemic during the last two years than they ever have in american history so i think it's going to be frustrating to some listeners who understand how difficult it is to live right now who understand that it was also difficult to live and survive in america under trump That that not that much has changed. I'm certainly not a big Biden booster here or interested in pretending that he's doing exactly what I would prescribe from a policy perspective. But what I'm hearing um, from Pavlina is that this is a bill that catered to Republican interests. It lowered the deficit. It basically opens up more oil drilling uh, in, in the United States much to the consternation of uh, environmental uh, advocates. There is this side deal with Joe Manchin that was made to get him uh, into this that opens up this uh, oil pipeline through West Virginia. It feels like there are a lot of gifts here for the Republicans to get them on board and to conservatives to get them on board. And yet you still seem to not really be willing to acknowledge that there's a compromise here. Or I don't really also hear you articulating an alternative plan to get down inflation. So you know why should listeners take what you're saying in good faith as opposed to being something along the lines of kind of just a more partisan jockeying here?
2: Well, let's be clear. I mean, Trump lost the election not because people didn't like Trump's policies. People love Trump's policies. Trump lost the election because they didn't like him and his behavior. And I don't always defend... Uh, Trump's uh, behavior. But if you want to have a debate about Trump's policies, I mean, my God, we have the lowest unemployment rate in American history. We had the lowest poverty rate in American history, the biggest wage gains for American workers in 30 years. We had the lowest black and Hispanic poverty rates, the lowest black and Hispanic unemployment rates. I mean, the economy was booming under Trump. And then of course, COVID hit. And you're right. I mean, I think one of the greatest tragedies of American history, was shutting down the American economy. That was, a. I think everybody agrees now, that was an catastrophic mistake. Sure, but, and but a Stephen Biden <laughs> is
1: also bragging about historically low unemployment rates. It seems like whoever's in yeah. office, everyone well, brags about how everything is great, <laughs> and the American people don't experience it that way. Yeah,
2: exactly, because right now, 82% of Americans, this is an all-time record, 82% of Americans believe the economy is headed in the wrong direction. I mean, the cruelest tax of all the tax that kills the middle class and lower income people is inflation. And <laughs> when Trump left office, we had a 1.5% inflation rate. During Trump's presidency, we averaged 2% inflation in 18 months. I mean, I don't actually know so what, how you so do this. So Stephen, he what, what the inflation do you think should rate. be done? Wait, wait, wait. He took the inflation rate from 1.5% to 9% in 18 months. I mean, how do you do that? It was because of the spending, and now we're going to add more spending, and they act as if that's going to reduce inflation. Yeah. I mean, that's a ding bad idea.
0: Uh, Pavlina, I want to bring you back in. Um, what do you? How would you respond to a, a criticism I've had of kind of the Biden administration's energy approach, which it seems to be. You know, we're moving away from fossil fuels, want to prioritize green energy, um, uh, climate change. I don't know how many Democrats now have bragged about owning Teslas, while at the same time begging Saudi Arabia for more gas because of the, of the crisis at home, and then, you know, continuing to fund the Ukrainian opposition, which is having, you know, the Russian conflict continue to, to drag on, which is also having this problem. It seems like a confused approach to energy issues. Does the Inflation Reduction Act address that, in your view?
4: I think it does help with the energy crisis. I mean, look, from a progressive point of view, this was a Faustian bargain. Uh, We had to do some giveaways to the fossil fuel uh, industry so that we can get this bill passed, but it does have some key components, some major investments in climate that we haven't seen in decades. And look, I mean, these are structural problems. You know, you can't change the grid overnight. You can't change the way agriculture is done overnight. The way, you know, we source our energy in our homes. This takes time, and we need to make targeted strategic uh, investments. I think. The, you know, the, the thinking is there. You know, would I have liked to see much bigger and bolder investment? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think this is Rooseveltian in the way that we transformed the country in the 40s uh, and that ushered in the golden age. But it is making the right investment in green energy. We we need to be very clear about this. <laughs> the days of coal are over. We're not going to go back and source our energy with coal. We have to then keep up with China, with Germany, with all the other countries that are investing aggressively in solar in wind, um, it's not going to be the complete solution. We have to have a multi-pronged strategy. So mm. I am happy to see the thinking. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to see the targeted investment. I need to put the deficit boogeyman to rest. We can't constantly be talking about, in the def- and the Democrats are wrong on this, that they are touting the deficit reduction as their major accomplishment. Let's be clear, the deficit was good for Trump every dollar the deficit is the government spending more dollars into the economy than it takes back that it, that money goes somewhere every dollar spent is ends up in somebody's pocket we want to be asking whose pocket whose huh. livelihood has been improved whose well-being has been improved when it is a tax giveaway to the wealthy we know exactly where that goes
2: stephen will so one quick thing, thing, thing about one just one quick thing about Germany I mean come on Germany, really? Germany tried green energy 10, 15 years ago. they' were about de- they're about 10 years ahead of us and what happened was I mean people should know this that Germany, it was a complete disaster in Germany. they Germany is a manufacturing country that, that has a lot of, uh, you know, we talk about German engineering. They've damn near bankrupted the country because they tried to run the country with windmills and solar panel. So what's happening now is that Germany is moving away from wind and solar power. They are massive using more coal. They're using more oil, they're using more gas, and they're rebuilding the nuclear plants. So we are making the exact mistake that Germany made 10 years ago, and we're going to suffer the same consequences. Meanwhile, China is taking over the global coal industry. Russia is taking over the uh, global oil and, uh, and gas industry. And this is not just a problem for the American economy, it is a massive national security problem that we're ceding control over the global energy markets to our enemies. I mean, that makes no sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's difficult because, you know, of course Obama bragged about making America like the the world's greatest uh, exporter Biden has in the context of this pandemic. Bent the knee and uh, opened up drilling permits. He bragged about fracking. It seems like he really yeah. has done everything that you would want, and yet is still getting this criticism. At the same time that some of these oil manufacturers are saying, in COVID, we don't actually want to open up these plants again that we shut down because of COVID, because the cost benefit isn't there. Because we know this is an industry that's going out, and what it takes to boost to get boost production again and get production going again doesn't pan out. Because we know that this is this is a 20-year plant. We're only on a 10-year horizon for this kind of production. So. I do think we need to come together and have a more honest conversation, as we've had here, and I appreciate you both, about how we're going to have to strategically manage the fact that oil and gas and coal are non-renewable resources. And no matter what you think politically, this transition to green energy has to happen at some point as it's happening Why? across the world. Why does it have thank to happen? Thank you so much, because we don't have <laughs> infinite amounts of uh, oil in the ground, and also there's a yes, the climate crisis too. that we you may or may not want to acknowledge We have, we have 500 years' with of oil, you. we have 400
2: years' of gas, and we have 600 years are the coal
1: Yeah, if r- all that carbon were burned, we'd be living on a planet that wasn't exactly uh, habitable by human beings, which is a little bit of a concern for, for some folks with uh, with lungs. But thank you so much for being with us, Stephen and Pavlina. We appreciate you. We'll have to have you back. We have a super Thank you. And we'll have more rising for you right after this.
0: General Michael Hayden, the former director of the CIA, had an interesting observation uh, that he shared with the world on Twitter, wanted to put this up on screen. So he's uh, reacting to a, a journalist who tweeted, I've covered extremism and violent ideologies around the world over my career, have never come across a political force more nihilistic, dangerous, and contemptible than today's Republicans. Nothing close. And then Hayden, uh, the former CIA director, retweeted it with, I agree, and I was the CIA director. Um, That's a really, really irresponsible and disturbing thing to say that, like, the today's, in my view, today's Republicans are more extreme and dangerous than ISIS or Mm -hmm. Al-Qaeda or... Uh, you know, a- actual, like, terrorist organizations or the people he's supposedly keeping us safe from, and w- will make people think, oh, if that's your ideology, that Republicans, that domestic Republicans mm-hmm. are the true threat, well, then who who is the deep state spying on? Who Who is the CIA, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security? Where are they placing their resources? If you're saying that, in your view, the major threat that we face is from, is from the half the country that votes for Donald Trump. um, Is is that who you're looking at? Is that who you're surveilling, rather than, um, again, ISIS, et cetera?
1: Yeah, well, the question about who these people are surveilling and whether or not they've ever been surveilling the right people (laughs) is a big one. But uh, something that leftists often say is that the real issue that liberals and never Trump Republicans had with Trump, had nothing to do with the substance and everything to do with a kind of unpredictability, a lack of control, lack of good optics, the messiness of it all the idea that he didn't follow procedure, he didn't follow the rules, he didn't follow decorum. Um, And it does feel like this response from people who were insiders as part of, I would argue, a very destructive uh, agency in the CIA, Mm -hmm. the idea that they would object to Trump or to object to Trumpism and the way it's manifested over the past few years as inherently dangerous and uniquely dangerous in the context of the world does speak to, I think, some establishment orientation that is really unsettled by the idea of Donald Trump and that erratic behavior, that unpredictable politics.
0: And is, frankly, in my view, overplaying the threat of political violence domestically or the, the scope of it. Is there some domestic political violence perpetrated by very fringe right wing people? Yes. It's not a lot, it's not a large category of violence. Most violence in the country is as committed totally apolitically or non-ideologically by neighbors who are angry at each other or it's domestic abuse or it's workplace violence or it's crime or something else. Very small category it is true. If you look at the numbers over the years, there has been a, a rise or a, a proportion rise in how much of that very minor category of violence is, can be credibly attributed to the right wing. That category looks large. If you only start counting after, like from September 12th, 2001 and on, uh, it's still, still dwarfed by the 9-11 if you start counting a day before that. Um, so fine, fair enough. Maybe it's appropriate to put some law enforcement resources um, uh, to that. But to characterize that as as the main threat, as the most nihilistic force you have ever encountered, is just is, is so indicative of very misplaced priority. That's like, that's TDS brain.
1: There is an argument, I think, that the way that we have characterized terrorists uh however you know i say that i only hesitate because obviously within their own context the point i'm trying to make is that in their own context people all over the world obviously see themselves differently than we Mm -hmm. describe them in the united states Mm -hmm. and that there is this interesting perspective where america is dealing with a level of political turmoil right now that we think of as other people's problems quote unquote third world problems those are the kind of terms that we're throwing around a lot when we're talking about this raid and it's a banana republic right But it is perhaps an eye-opening moment that, you know, one one person's terrorist group is another person's freedom fighter in every context, in every war, in every conflict and skirmish that has ever happened in history is just written by the victors. And in the case of the Civil War and the War of Northern Aggression types, sometimes it continues to be written by the losers. But but the reality is that we are now in this in this weird context where we are having new definite. We're, we're 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 characterizing what's going on in our country the same way that we've often characterized what goes on in other countries. And I can see an argument that's not necessarily a bad thing, even if there is a certain alarmist, exaggerated um, uh, aspect to it. That's not necessarily constructive. But you know. It is interesting to see that this kind of um, the the establishment stakeholders are still reacting in this way. This like Liz Cheney camp, perhaps a little bit bigger than we anticipated. Mm,
0: absolutely. Well, we also wanted to play uh, this clip from uh, Tulsi Gabbard uh, describing the situation as she sees it.
5: Uh, well, when you look at permanent Washington, we see very prominently placed as the national security state and the mainstream media. It's hard not to be skeptical when you look at their tactics and their timing to really question what their motives are, to leverage their power and their influence to have an impact on these midterm elections that voters will be going to vote at in just a few weeks, and to do what they have already stated publicly is their objective, which is to prevent Donald Trump from running for president in 2024. This is not something new. We only have to go back in the recent past to to remember that these are the very same people who deceived the American people for years, trying to get us to believe that Donald Trump was an agent of Russia and that he stole the 2016 election. These are the same people going after parents and patriots targeting them as extremists, as people who are quote-unquote enemies of the state, dissenters, opponents. These are the very same people who want to censor us and control what information we can see and hear and say through their so-called mm-hmm. ministry of truth, which by the way, hasn't gone away. It's still there, it's just there by a different name. So. The American people, I think, are seeing that, hey, this is not a one-off situation. It's just a serious escalation of this dangerous trend we've seen of the politicization of public institutions that exist to serve the public right. good, but are instead being leveraged for power and political gain by those in power. Those who exist in what is often called the deep state, the permanent Washington, as you refer to it, they are people who believe that, that we, the people, exist to serve them rather than them existing to serve the people. And so they will go, stop at nothing in order to protect their power that is that permanent Washington. And dangerously, they've got the national security state as their enforcement arm to do so.
3: Hmm.
0: And that looked a little odd on screen because that was a clip from Twitter, and that's the only way we could show it. We had her between those uh, <laughs> those two pillars. Um, look, I, I substantively agree with uh, what she was saying there, you know, when you're smearing all Republicans as violent extremists, as the former CIA director was doing, you are including people who, right, were protesting at their school board because they didn't like its or curriculum policies. You're, you know, all, all those kinds of people, which you, you end, you get to a place where you're, you're claiming that half the country holds views that are violent and extremist. And then, and then you really like what what do you where do you even go from there then it's then you're in i guess if you believe what you're saying then you're already in like nazi germany or something it's too late to salvage this country
1: yeah so i have long been an advocate of being careful about language that is critical of let's say a republican you know or a conservative official elected official or a pundit someone who's high profile and The voters as a whole. In fact, at one point in 2018-ish, Bernie Sanders was asked whether or not Donald Trump supporters were racist, and he declined to say so, and people really came down on him hard. He said, look, I'm happy to point to specific things that Trump has said that I believe are racist, and I think it's fine to criticize Donald Trump as racist. Meanwhile, Hillary Clinton was like,
0: call on me, call
1: on me. (laughs) Right, but he took a a lot of fun. I wrote an article at The Intercept defending his choice because I think, one, just empirically, it's very difficult to accurately make a claim about such a large group of people. But also, if you want to have any kind of sense of trust, a public trust and goodwill between people, you you, you got to start somewhere that's not jumping to quite those that level of conclusion. And that's not... What individ- individuals can say what they want to say but if you are a communicator if you're a politician if you're in the public eye i do think you have a different role to play so i do think that some of the language that's been used by democrats to discuss republicans and the conservative movement and trumpism has been harmful at the same time yes sometimes it's parents protesting mask mandates which i wouldn't describe as fascist or extremist or anything like that but I do think that it is obviously true that there is a more extreme movement that has exploited all of these legitimate public concerns, people who are just legitimately concerned about their kids and all of these things, to really gin up a, a pogrom of sorts against marginalized communities. The, the number of words that are taken up in our public space talking about trans kids when most people don't have a trans kid and this overinvestment and what happens in their, their transition process from parents who I don't think have a sincere interest in that but understand that it's polarizing in this way that is a pipeline toward a whole host of political and economic beliefs that frankly don't iner to the benefit of the average person i do think that's a real problem i don't know how to describe it and i don't quite know how to disentangle it from people who i think are motivated by sincere anxieties but I am a little concerned, not just that the language among liberals has been so inflammatory, but some of the ways that even people like Tulsi are using language, it, it does it does make people, I think, get in a posture that the world is its very dire, it's very extreme, and I do worry that it doesn't do the work of bringing us together as a mm-hmm. community as much as making the boogeyman seem so vicious and so threatening um, that it will drive people to make again, political decisions and personal decisions that aren't necessarily rational or productive.
0: I I do wish that um, uh, conservative pundits would turn down the the rhetoric a little bit on some of this stuff. Like, you talk about, you know, don't write... Checks you can't cash. Don't like diagnose or don't uh, over use language that then can't fit what you're saying. Right? It, 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 if, it's, if it starts with you know some of these curriculums, for instance, are using some kind of more out there, fringier academic kind of ideas that aren't really appropriate for young people. Sure, most people agree with that. Then it, but then suddenly morphs into and the Democrats are all pedophiles. Trying live, to exactly. Take your They're killers. Right. It's, and that, it's so, <laughs> right. That, that's not true, and that's and, and that. It, it makes people can tune you out because you yeah. sound like a crazy person. What's what you're saying is crazy and not accurate. Yeah. So yeah. let's turn down that that kind of stuff a Tur- little. Turn bit. down the heat. Turn it. Turn it down. Turn that a- dial a- a- down.
1: A- the bills are expensive anyway. <laughs> <laughs> More rising right after this.
3: I think that the people who are
0: arguing
4: that that he's been given a ton of fuel like they just poured rocket fuel in his engine, I think that's absolutely true. I mean if you just look at the fundraising he's done off the back of this already.
0: Right, but what did they
4: Absolutely.
5: Yeah, the case. but I don't
0: mean in terms of politically. I mean like legally. Like what did they find? Oh. And is he actually is he actually in trouble? Cuz I think the goal was to try to knock him out of the 2024 elections, right? By a bunch of big trying seats. him
4: for crimes. What did he yeah. do? I don't know. Do you I don't know, know what if he they did,
0: were, Jamie? You, has it been absolutely released? What they caught? I don't know that yet, but it, uh, holding on to boxes of is it really about he wasn't like to have? confidential information that he shouldn't have had in his home, like that was so important they couldn't just ask for it; they had to go in there and get it. Well, I think the po- the problem is having it right because if you have it in an unsecure location, meaning unsecure in terms of the government's protection, it's not. It's not locked up in archives. It's not in a place that's very difficult to access. You have control personally over the access to something that's top secret. If that's the case, then that's a problem because that safe could be open. People can get in there. People can get the code. They can copy it. They can send it to China. Yeah, but do you think that's a genuine concern or is it they want to find something, anything that they can use to prevent him from running again? That was Joe Rogan reacting to the Mar-a-Lago raid, uh, making some interesting points there. I think I don't totally agree. So obviously, it's in some very narrow sense, it can be good for Trump. to ha- I mean, it's never good for you if, you're, if the FBI raids your home. But does it put the focus back on Trump? Yes. I don't know how long that's going to last. Fundraising? Um, He made
1: that point about fundraising Yeah, the fundraising point
0: is interesting. It certainly energizes the very pro-Trump faction into being even more pro-Trump. So it it could serve—to the extent that Trump's only interests are staying in the spotlight for as long as possible, yes, it serves Trump's interests. I would argue, and have argued (laughs) also, that keeping Trump in the spotlight is not good for the Republican Party as a whole. Um, it, it's, we can, we're already seeing it in the changing fortunes of what November is now uh, expected to look like. The predictions are now that we're not going to have necessarily this massive red, uh, wave that we were expecting. Um, sim- and also I don't quite agree that it's part of like a concerted strategy on Democrats part to like prevent him from being able to run. Like you don't no, I, well, that's not, 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 happen.
1: Wait, not a concerted strategy. I shouldn't say that.
0: Well, that's not going to happen. But, but here, Here's the problem. If he's going to run, he's going to run. He can run from prison, but but he's going to run.
1: The question is whether or not they can damage them. So one, people are making these arguments about whether or not if he makes the statutory violation, he'll be barred from running. But even that and the legal quagmire of that aside, the argument is that this hurts him enough politically that it makes it more difficult for him to run. And it's difficult. Like I'm not saying that this was like some deep plot that Democrats coordinated on. There's no knowledge. There's no way for, for us to know that. But when you have the media salivating in the way that they've done from the jump without knowing anything at all still about the content of what was actually discovered, and talking in terms of can he run again, is he going to go to jail, lock him up. I mean. Again, obviously Republicans are the same thing about Hillary Clinton. I'm not saying that Democrats are outliers here in the way they've behaved. But when you see how they've approached this, when you see senior Democratic officials kind of thirsting for Trump to be felled, as it were, politically because of this event, it's very hard for me not to understand what people would read into that as the cause of why this investigation has been
0: pursued in the first place. They're clearly not trying to stop him from running because they want him to run. (laughs) They
3: absolutely want him to run.
0: Uh, there's no indication to me They've learned their lesson we've, we've talked on the show About the DNC You know Running essentially ads For the more Trumpy candidates The more MAGA candidates They did that In the, that one Michigan race And other places Because they want it, The Trumpy it, people Front and center Because they know That's what's dragging The but, Republicans but down I mean
1: aren't we making The same argument They want yeah. someone to run Who they think is damaged And that this is uh, yeah. You know Obviously this might Poke the bear And get Trump Even more interested saying they're running. not Trying to prevent
0: him From a, it's, it's It's not possible To prevent him from running And they're not Trying to prevent him From running they want him to run. But,
1: but I'm saying, I'm <laughs> saying different things here. There are there are, are people who definitely want Trump to go to jail over this. And many of them speak right. on MSNBC all the time. Right. So when you're when people are asking, is this really about Democrats winning X Y and Z? Is this really about There's a lot of different camps of Democrats going on here. Sure. So even though Hillary Clinton, we know in 2016 wanted Trump to run, I wouldn't say as a whole necessarily Democrats wanted Trump to run. Many Democrats in very good faith thought that I mean, Trump de- was to The no, Democratic and
0: voters want don't want Trump to be president right, again, but right. Democratic pundits know that he's very, very good for business, that he's their only business strategy left. And many Democratic politicians know, right, ultimately the goal is to not have Trump or or Trump policies or the Republicans. It's just, a, it's just a battle with the Republicans. I know, it's not I, a battle with the Republicans. I
1: guess I disagree there. I, and I would keep taking these. But I'm sure by they're honest Democrats. Who, I'm sure I'm not. No, no, no. I'm but you talk about pundits. Let's talk about Democratic Party pundits. When I watch MSNBC, the Democratic Party pundits, want Donald Trump to go to jail over this, or they want him to be legally barred from running for president over this. That is the tenor of the conversation. Every question is, well they don't is actually. it possible well is it possible that donald trump might go to jail over this well who's to say is it possible that he'd be legally barred for even writing for but those are the kind of hypotheticals that are being it's, asked on and, on and on on but and on if they actually channel. went to jail
0: they couldn't they wouldn't be able to talk about that anyway it's joker and batman it's kill you what would i do without you that's what Ro- it is
1: right, we were talking past each other joe rogan is is putting out there what is what, what is what are people being inspired by what is really mm. motivating the thirst and covering covering the story a what desire motivating... to jail donald trump
0: okay yes. i agree with you yes. on that. So,
1: yes so so you you know, and that is why I think that there's this weird credibility issue here. That even if there is something legitimately legitimate here, that you know, Biden, uh, sorry, that Trump took intentionally, took nefariously, and that had a really um, significant national security impact, mm-hmm. I do think that the way people have been covering this, and it didn't have to be that way, the way that people have been covering this has fed in to the most conspiratorial understanding of why the FBI did this raid, which is from a conservative perspective that people are out to get Trump. And we saw this in some of the clips I played during my radar yesterday. There was these interviews done of people who have gone to Mar-a-Lago to protest. And to a T, they've all said, this is a political witch hunt. They're doing this just to keep Trump out of office. So whatever Democrats believe or whatever conspiracy did or did not happen, that's very much the messaging that's coming down the pike on Republicans' fears. And I think that liberal coverage is feeding into those fears.
0: Okay, I I do agree with that. But the the reality is, I, I don't think the reality is any of that. I think the reality is Trump took some boxes because he doesn't have an especially <laughs> high regard for following like the details of the law or maybe maybe it was confusing or maybe anyone yeah, could have gotten a, he's a spacey mixed up Gemini king and and I don't know what that means <laughs> and the then the FBI did what the law enforcement deep state does what deep state's going to do and they, which is you know annoy people and yeah. go after them to the maximum extent allowed under the law which is a lot and they like to make life difficult for a lot of people including Trump and Trump like people Who've been very critical of them? It's it's age. It's the agency acting in its best interest, doing what it does, which maybe in some sense looks like a Team Blue political goal, but is not in. I don't think is in concert with right, other so Team Blue. It's that's not to say it's good or it's right. It's just. Very typical behavior from the FBI. So
1: here's a devil's advocate question, which I wish people would ask of, you know, conservatives in these mainstream news environments where you have people who are very much defending Trump and being critical of the raid as a matter of political principle. What should the approach have been, given that there had been this like 18 months or so of requests of these documents, even if we agree that it's nothing but cooking recipes, they're documents that according to the law should have been turned over. What should have been the next step after you ask, after some documents are given over, after there's evidence from the documents that have been returned that there is in fact confidential information, even though there had been disclosures that there wasn't confidential information, when there is this mixed record of compliance? At what point, given that there is the potential for potentially confidential national security secret style information in these boxes in a public hotel where people are coming and going at what point if any would you have considered this FBI raid appropriate and but for an FBI raid what were the alternatives Mm -hmm. because if you can answer that question and tell me that there was something else that should have been done then I think that you have a very strong argument that this was a witch hunt but if you cannot answer that question and if you can't give me a a timeline that you think is appropriate to let confidential potentially sensitive information be sitting in a basically a hotel Hotel basement unlocked for all of that time, or not secured officially at all of that time, then at some point you have to concede that the government is at its limits, and some kind of physical intervention into Trump's space was necessary, necessary to follow the law. Well, but
0: I think it does matter what the documents actually say. If it is just cooking recipes, probably nothing needs to be done because it's stupid and the law is overly so strict Trump in this way. So does Trump forever? Or if it's, if it's state secrets that he could sell or something, then mm-hmm. yes, of course. Then a, there are circumstances which a raid is but, but, justified. But play
1: that for a little bit. It's just cooking recipes. It's relatively benign. Yeah. But the law says, I mean, like the rules are that the archives need this stuff for historical reasons or whatever. Do, do we just say, oh, well, Trump gets to keep these boxes for the rest of his life. Maybe well, burn them. Maybe the argument them that
0: some people in the Trump camp are saying is that, well, he did declassify these, so he has the right to right, keep them.
1: Right, but it's, all of that's, is the but it's not about classified information. Who right it's documents that, for archival reasons, need to be in the National Archives. Mm-hmm. So this isn't, you know, take all of the espionage stuff out of it. At the end of the day, are we just saying that if you take, if you steal dishes from the Rose Room or whatever, I don't know where they keep dishes. If you you steal furniture from the White House, they find out about it because you were the president of the United States. You just get to keep that stuff forever because we're just saying, as a matter of principle, no no one should ever go into your house and take it back? No, I didn't say that. Well, I mean, that to me is the fundamental question. And so then you can talk about, well, he should have gotten five years to return it, 10 years, 50 years, whatever. But at some point, obviously, I think most people would agree that a line will be drawn in the sand. And if he really, really, really isn't going to comply, then there's going to have to be a human being that goes into his house to get the stuff back, whether it's FBI or some other agency or something you know, less intense-seeming. And if you admit that, then on some point, uh, on some basis, you're going to maybe be able to get get some traction with these Trump voters who don't think that this was ever, ever, ever going to be appropriate.
0: Sure, I don't disagree with that. But I guess I, I don't, but I don't, default toward trusting the FBI's judgment that now was the right time to do this and it was being done. Sure, And and neither do you, probably. And and again, their naivety about how big a deal this was going to be does not suggest to me that they had necessarily thought this through. But of course, the president should not be The president, by virtue of being the president, should not be entitled to more leeway from law enforcement. He he should be more tightly constrained by law enforcement than your average citizen. So, no, I, yes. Move out days of garage
1: sale at the White House. Take the Lincoln bust. Take the Resolute desk. Take whatever you want. No one's ever coming for it. Oh,
0: my goodness. Uh, All right. We'll have more rising right after this. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, on Wednesday delivered a rebuke of her agency's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, saying it failed to respond quickly enough and is now calling for the CDC to reorganize very broadly, according to The New York Times. She said, quote, we are responsible for some pretty dramatic, pretty public mistakes. This is our watershed moment, and we must pivot. And bravo, I could not agree more. Uh, it is, uh, frankly, a... Uh, uh- edifying to hear her admit this because the mistakes uh, were significant from the get-go and and she wasn't in charge when these mistakes were made but the the biggest one being the just the testing debacle the CDC actively outlawed people who were people were making their own other companies researchers scientists had made tests that worked the CDC said no to all of those we have our own Mm -hmm. use that and then that one didn't work which put us a couple weeks behind at the you know right when we were at the the most critical point of we knew cases were about to spike everywhere and deaths were going to spike we were not prepared for this thing um, and this is the agency's entire job is to be prepared for something like this yeah and then you get to and, and now we we get round two with monkeypox and it, some of the same mistakes are being made like what is wrong with this organization
1: yeah I've been saying for a while that people who've been making these stakes in the political context should just own up to them and say I'm sorry and that they should trust the public um enough to admit that they they were wrong and trust that out of that admission of wrongdoing could come a renewed public trust if it's earned over time so i'm really glad that this is a good first step and i hope people take it in good faith as long as it seems to be offered in good faith and that changes are made. And to obviously reserve their judgment, but to be looking forward to having a CDC that's more Mm -hmm. responsive to the critiques that have been um, put out there over the course of the last year. And so I won't belabor the the points that I made on my radar today, going through a sort of a timeline of misinformation and backtracking on various pieces of public information. But I do think it's important to note that part of the problem here was this overconfidence and this smug overconfidence that got politicized. that said, we know exactly what the science is. We know exactly what works and what won't work Mm -hmm. as, as we were in an emerging crisis and no one could possibly have known. And instead of just admitting that we're getting this to this information to on a rolling basis, we're giving you our best understanding of things. I think That kind of hubris from liberals combined with uh, some kind of bad faith stuff from the right where they wanted to exploit ambiguity over the crisis created a really toxic mixture of misinformation that put the whole society Mm -hmm. behind. And hopefully we can get back on track. But look. Joe Biden right now is talking about ending so many of the protections that we had, no longer providing free vaccines or testing as we're going into a fall where we're expected to have another COVID surge. People are going to go back inside. There's going to be more indoor dining. All of these cute little street side outdoor setups are going to shut down for the winter. And we're going to have to deal with the consequences outside of using tools like mandates that were so politically polarizing, we're going to have to figure out how to do this on our own. And we're going to need some good guidance. And I hope the CDC is up to the task.
0: Yeah, I hope they are too. Uh, One idea I saw floating around somewhere, and I I can't remember who suggested it, so I'm sorry to be stealing it from whoever (laughs) did suggest it, would be to spin off the kind of um, data collecting function the CDC does. like like Have have it like uh, like the Bureau of Labor Statistics or that kind of thing. So here's just where A different agency is just responsible for gathering all the data we have on COVID, on monkeypox, on other diseases. And, and then there's a different agency that gives recommendations based on mm. those numbers rather than having it all the same people relying on well, which data is being used. And because there was a lot of, uh, it, it was clear that, um, and, I, and I know you did talk about in your radar this new study that had a more favorable result for mass mandates, but uh, a, a year ago when the, the kind of um, mass guidance was changing in the midst of Delta, the CDC was very persuaded to keep rec- recommending very stringent school policies based on some studies out of Arizona, some other places that were not very good studies. Uh, wh- and, and so the CDC said, didn't quite explain why they were mm. changing their mind. They're like, we're changing our mind about this. And then finally, it was like, okay, well, we did it because we looked at these studies. Yeah. And then the public uh, health expert, including David Zweig, who we've had on the show, other people you know, looked at these and said, um, Actually, these studies aren't very good. They don't, they yeah. don't really show yeah. what you're saying. So that's, it's... that's
1: really fair, especially because right now there are a lot of political incentives to stop mm-hmm. keeping records, to stop keeping information. Because like I said on my radar, Biden wants COVID to be over for political reasons, not because he cares about you or your business or your family or your school, I'm sorry, but because there are very strong political reasons to say, I was able to get this under control. This isn't a crisis that I can be held responsible for. So to the extent that there is an incentive to not even track cases anymore not have people testing so they can have plausible deniability that the thing is over I like the idea of having some independence there and look from my perspective I don't want to cherry-pick studies I'm not interested in doing that at all Mm -hmm. but I do want to look I was a history of science major I I don't want to just take some superficial headline at face value I want to know if there's a mass study that shows that masks don't work is it that the masks don't work or is it because they have they been tracking compliance with the mask mandate have they been tracking what kind of masks were used have they is this like a bunch of five year olds who are unlikely mm-hmm. to be compliant or are these adults in a healthcare setting that, you know, are compliant, but also is the healthcare setting a higher exposure place, so they have to right. take that into account. I just wanna know. I just want to know. I don't have a dog in this fight. I just want to know. And I don't have that sense, and I don't think you have that sense, and most people have that sense, that there is a repository for that kind of information, even two years into this thing, and that feels really negligent. Mm -hmm.
0: Or do they appear to work because the people still wearing them also limit their other social behavior, and is it the case that if they didn't, then as soon as there's an outbreak, it doesn't really matter whether you're masked or not.
1: You know what, Robbie? Maybe we should participate in a masking trial, since we are obviously occupying similar spaces, and well, no, if you commit to wearing a mask and still do all your other risk your <laughs> behaviors, we well, know if masks really work or not. If uh,
0: if we were just studying the two of us, it would certainly look like masks <laughs> Save you. The number of times um, I've, I've been ill, even since just hosting the show, has been noticed by our, our commenters. I've, I've had a rough. Uh, my immune system's had a rough time. Yeah. But uh, and yeah, you. But you did get COVID finally.
1: I did get COVID. Yeah. I think from taking an international Not point from trip. not from this guy. Not from that guy. I also was not. Doing some of the other things that I mm. typically do to keep it. But look, I shame. Let's get the shame belt. Shame. No, but it's not, shame. No, we're it's just not kidding. About we're you, just but kidding. Here, here's the thing: like, I took a seven-hour flight, and normally when I've been flying during COVID, I don't unmask during the entire flight. I have a high-quality mask. I I, I hook it over my earphones, so my ears don't get sore, you know. And I can like last the whole because back of my ear, back of your ears don't oh, get my, sore. Oh my! Oh, they absolutely masks. do. Yeah. So I, I have a trick to yeah. put them over my headphones so they're not touching my ears, and I and I don't take a sip of water. I drink up, and then I. I take care of my toilet paper behavior when I get off the plane. This time on a seven hour flight, I couldn't do that. At some point, I got a breakdown. You got to have a drink
0: on a seven hour flight. And that's, Margarita, and that's a glass of thing wine. Happens.
1: That's what everything happens. So, look, that's obviously not science. That's anecdotal evidence. But I'm, I'm glad that the CDC is acknowledging some of its failures. And I hope that improving tracking, just as Biden has been sent to pull back from a lot of these programs, an independent organization. Keeping up to date with what's really going on is more important mm-hmm. uh, than ever.
0: Mm-hmm. And stop, stop telling us to not eat like medium-rare steak. We're just, <laughs> we're gonna do that anyway. More rising <laughs> after this. Israeli Defense Force officials have now confirmed that IDF missiles were responsible for the attack on a Gaza cemetery that killed five children on August seventh. This backtracks previous reporting from a senior official who insisted the children were killed by an off-course Islamic Jihad rocket. Please note that the officials coming forward now are unnamed.
1: Reuters reports that 17 children were among 49 Palestinians killed in the three-day assault which Israel described as a preemptive operation. Katie is host of the Useful Idiots podcast and of the Katie Hopper Show, and she's here to discuss the new developments. Welcome back to Rising, Katie. Thanks so much. All right. So I saw people discussing the story with mock surprise. Oh, look, the people who we always thought had done it had done it. What, what do you make of this kind of um, you know, reveal of who's right. responsible for these deaths?
3: Well, I think it's important to note that, first of all, this story was broken by Haaretz, which is an Israeli newspaper. So I'm saying that for the people who will uh, unjustifiably, I I would say, uh, accuse us of being some kind of uh, Israel-hating entity just for merely reporting on this or discussing this. So it was broken in Haaretz that this was uh, the doing of Israel, not of Palestinians. And uh, the story is important to note. Uh, because as often happens in war, the stories get lost. But what happened was this was uh, hours before the ceasefire was declared. Um, Four children in the Jabalia refugee camp in the northern Gaza Strip, uh, four cousins uh, went to visit their grandfather's grave in a nearby cemetery. They went with one of their friends. So that was five of them. Uh, one of the five children who was killed was only four years old. And Israel bombed part of the cemetery, and they, you know, not to be graphic, but they blew the kids to pieces. And a father of one of the children uh, recalled running to the cemetery just right after he heard the explosion and finding literal pieces of his son.
0: Oh my God!
3: Uh, and uh, like scooping them up. And now the five children are buried in the cemetery that they were visiting. And uh, as you guys said, at first um, Israel was uh, suggesting it was done by a Palestinian Islamic Jihad, but they finally admitted that it was their own bombing of the, the cemetery. And of course, uh, this was, as you guys referred to, this was at, uh, at the tail end of the attacks on Gaza that left 49 people and 17 children uh, killed. And again, this attack was preemptive. That, that's something Israel itself uh, admits. And I think it's really important to, to discuss another related story, which is breaking news. Um, well, depending on when you're watching this, but uh, as of Thursday morning, um, uh, a, Israel uh, launched raids on six human rights organizations. Basically overnight, they went to these human rights organizations and they shuttered them and they took some of their supplies. They declared them uh, terrorist organizations and shut them down, and uh, these allegations are baseless, and we know that because Israel tried to get nine European governments to sign off on the claim that they were terrorist organizations, and they refused to do so, um, because there was no evidence of that. So it makes sense when you're in light of the other story we just spoke about it, it would make sense for Israel to be threatened by the existence of human rights organizations because when you're a government that claims to respect human rights, but you actually are launching preemptive attacks and frequently violating uh, international law through your attacks. And of course, constantly violating international law by being an occupying force um, in an apartheid state you don't really want human rights organizations operating.
0: Is there enough of a history? And I, I'm asking you this because I, I generally, I genuinely don't know because I don't uh, cover these things nearly as rigorously uh, as you do, Katie. Is there a history of um, you know the uh, the IDF officials saying um, saying one thing and uh, then yeah. unna- unnamed? Um, sources contradicting that reporting to outlets like Haaretz that would thus give us some reason to default to kind of trusting this new reporting rather than the official statement?
3: Well, I think just recently we saw with Shireen Abu Akleh that the Israeli government tried to claim that it was done by Palestinians, that she was shot and killed by Palestinians, and they even provided video footage. And luckily there were people who were able to trace the video footage and show that it, it would have been impossible for a bullet shot from there, because they did have footage of shooting, but that shooting was clearly not related to the murder of um, Palestinian American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. So I think uh, we see this kind of obfuscation and denial uh, quite frequently, and um, it, I mean it's so it's it's so clear right now that. You know that the evidence is, supports the fact that Israel killed these five children because Israel even is, is no longer pushing back on it. They're not denying it anymore. And that suggests that there really is overwhelming evidence of this. I mean, the eyewitnesses saw it happen. They knew it was Israel. Everyone who saw it happen knew that, that it was. Um, but I think that, you know, it, what, what's frightening is that Israel, because of its special relationship with the United States, and that's something that U.S. politicians constantly brag about, uh, is never really called out for these attacks. And these are attacks that if uh, governments, adversarial governments uh, to the United States committed them, they'd be condemned constantly. Although to be fair, as we see with the case of Saudi Arabia, sometimes the United States doesn't call out this. But, to, but that's also, they're not adversarial. That's not an adversarial government. What am I saying? But it is, it's a, I always say that uh, Israel is the United States's wife and uh, Saudi Arabia is its side piece. So uh, the United States has a special relationship with both countries, but in one case it's very public and it celebrates it, and the other case it's on the on the down low.
1: See, Katie, no one no one can put it quite like you, which is why I kind of want to ask you about this this interesting dynamic that occurs where Israel is really framed and I think very intentionally through its own PR and in the public imagination in the United States as uh, the bastion of liberalism in the Middle East. It's not just our ally for ally reasons. It's the lone defender of you know, democracy and women's rights and LGBT rights and all of these things in the region. And that was really pushed as a way to create solidar- a sense of solidarity between Americans and Israelis in this special relationship, or the Israeli government, rather, in this special relationship. And moments like this obviously cut to the core of the idea that it is this ideological partner in the region that we should, you know, turn a blind eye toward uh, because it does is this defender and protector of the vulnerable. And I wonder if you could speak to how this kind of event is filtered um, through the local media and through also through the American press in a way that manages to protect the broader image of. Uh, Israel as distinct in the region as a champion of human rights and interest. I I don't mean to trivialize this, but a lot of us have been watching uh, Nathan Felder's latest show, and there is a very adamant uh, Zionist in in the last episode who ends up making the case, you know, we we told them not to go there. We told them it was going to be bombed, and they went anywhere, and it's their fault. I mean, are you seeing that kind of... um, messaging or what what is going on where it seems like this happens again and again and there's very little in the way of a shift in public attitudes about what's going on in the region
3: yeah i mean i think there is some shift that's going on in public attitudes there's not a shift in policy and that's of course a big Mm. problem but yeah it's almost like uh people are so um they've been so bombarded by imagery and um framing of palestinians and middle east people in middle east uh as as quote unquote terrorists i mean we've seen this through hollywood this is one of the one of the reasons it was so easy for bush to convince people that saddam hussein had something to do with 9 11. it's this kind of like this terrorist threat among people who are of a certain background. So even though Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden had nothing, like were ideological polar opposites in many ways, it was so easy to pretend that Saddam Hussein had something to do with 9-11 because people, I think, have such, like, either conscious or subconscious uh, Islamophobia. And that comes from a lot of movies. I mean, it used to be the Russians and during the Cold War and then it became Middle Easterners. Um, so I think that's part of it. Also, I think that Israel has been really good at framing everything that Israel does as, as uh, unfortunate but inevitable or unnecessary for self-defense. Yeah. And of course, they always say, does Israel have the right to defend itself? Yes, it does. But a preemptive strike is not self-defense. Yeah. And, and and if they have, they also always brag about their, their uh, surgical precision and their advanced weaponry. But if they have that, then how do they justify killing all these civilians? And the truth is that there is a... I'm, next time I'm on, I'll come back with the name, but there's a uh, a retaliatory uh, military code. It's unofficial, but it's well known that you're supposed to attack in a way that uh, you know scares the other side from ever doing anything again. And again, when the other side are the people who have the legal right to resist their uh, occupiers, and this is just according to the UN, uh, it, it's, a, it's really gaslighting is what right. it is, because it's pretending that the people who are living under occupation and apartheid are the people inciting the violence. Uh, and it's a totally asymmetrical warfare, obviously. And Israel has the Iron Dome. And again, if you think that Israel's not an apartheid state, don't listen to me. Listen to the Israeli human rights organization, B'Tselem, which has declared it to be uh, an apartheid state. Right
0: well katie thank you so much for joining us and shedding light on this really really disturbing story obviously we appreciate it thanks so much and we'll have more rising right after this libs of TikTok has been suspended from facebook after making some uh, controversial claims about Boston Children's Hospital, or at least that's what we think the the suspension is for. Facebook did not actually give a reason; just said they violated community standards, and that it, the matter has already been reviewed and cannot be uh, reversed. So we want to get into this, uh, Brianna. Um, I what so we'll talk about substantively about it in a minute, but I, I I think social media companies should give you more of a, a reason, mm. and like this can't be reviewed. So I, I do. We'll get into it. I. Do think libs of TikTok the account mischaracterized this video uh, that they they uh, went viral that they they had shared? Um, Did they mischaracterize it more than things are just kind of commonly mischaracterized on social media? I'm not sure. Um, I would absolutely be open to argument that this is kind of biased or heavy-handed moderation. Um, and, And also, they're not actually even being clear that this is the reason the page got in trouble. Now, so the page is suspended, so it's still there. But libs of TikTok can't do anything with it. They can't, I think they can't log into it. They can't change it or modify it. Um, in any way, so we do want to sh- uh, play the the video again that we think got them in trouble. So this is it on Twitter. The libs of TikTok account had tweeted this. Uh, libs of TikTok, by the way, for any right. of our <laughs> audience members who don't know, but probably most of you know by this by by now, is this uh, conservative account that. Uh, that uh, kind of takes videos on TikTok often of uh, of teachers or of doctors who are on the progressive side of things who are yeah, the talking cr- about cr- transgender cringe,
1: cringe videos that are that display the excesses. I would argue the, the right. most extreme kind of unsympathetic caricatures of what it is to be a liberal. Right. And most of them, I would say a lot of it, it's true. It's videos that are posted by people. Right, posted by the people. This is not private, Veritas-type,
0: surreptitious recording of things people, well, these are things people shared publicly. Yeah, it's, it's and more, t- lives of TikTok aggregates them and says, well, look, yeah. people, this is what.
1: It's like a window into yeah. what it is to be a quote unquote lib. Like, look, see, this is how crazy they are, is generally the, the vibe.
0: All right, so let's play this
1: video. Dinner hysterectomy is very similar to most hysterectomies that occur. A hysterectomy itself is the removal of the uterus, the cervix, which is the opening of the uterus, and the fallopian tubes, which are attached to the sides of the uterus. Some gender-affirming hysterectomies will also include the removal of the ovaries, but that's technically a separate procedure called a bilateral oophorectomy, And not every gender-affirming hysterectomy includes that, and people who are getting gender-affirming hysterectomies do not have to have their ovaries removed.
0: So the caption for that tweet that Libs of TikTok added says, Boston Children's Hospital is now offering gender-affirming hysterectomies for young girls. And it's the young girls part that is in contention. So nowhere, if you note in that clip, did she actually say young girls. I think the implication, people would think that means 12-, 13-, 14-year-olds. And according to the Boston Children's Hospital website, um, they're actually only offering it to 18 year olds. Now, apparently, according to the Daily Caller, it was 17, and then there was an outcry, and now it's 18, uh, so maybe you could, to me, I maybe people will disagree, I would say there's not a huge difference, if you're uh, beyond, I mean, 16 is generally the age I personally think we should, extend most rights to people to be able to consent to do various things huh. so as, as long as it's beyond that age you know whether you know whether this is a good choice for many people pursuing it i don't know uh, but I would substantially leave these decisions to the individual beyond that age. So whether it's 17 or 18 doesn't really matter to me. And to the extent they were implying it was younger than that, I do think that was very irresponsible on the part of this account.
1: Yeah, so this, even though I think that many of us have been warning about certain kinds of free speech overreaches, censorship overreaches, especially in the context of these um, uh, media platforms that Mm -hmm. aren't subject to the same traditional First Amendment rules and don't have a lot of transparency, to your point, about why they make these um, censorship decisions, even people who are leaning in that direction and who have been very critical uh, of these platforms and their decision have, been, have said, you know, I don't love this video and maybe tw- Twitter should take it down because it misrepresents the content right. of the, the caption misrepresents but I think the, Twitter handled it the video so well. So just uh, sure. for specifically, uh, Jesse Single, who has gotten a lot of hot water over the years for writing articles about detransition. Uh, De transitioners, so people who transition and, and uh, have gender affirming s- either surgeries or uh, go on hormones or basically become, you know, s- you know, come out as trans, deciding later in life that they aren't, they no longer want to, um, uh, they no longer see themselves as trans. He's gotten a lot of pushback from the trans community as a consequence of this, but he's coming out here kind of in defense of, I would argue, you know, uh, against this transmits right. information there, thing, yeah, quote, saying, quote, I'm very free speechy, <laughs> but in a case like this where a big account posts a false claim that isn't even supported in the video, I absolutely think Twitter should take it down before it can spread further. Not saying Twitter should do this a lot, but sometimes yes. So
0: I don't know that they should take it down. Actually, I think the way Twitter handled this versus Facebook is, is better. So on the, on the tweet of it, there's this bird watch, which is Twitter's fact-checking version, which is a thousand times better than Facebook because it is just done by users. So users have just added, clarifying. Other Twitter people have said, "Hey, here's a, here's a couple articles you can look at, mm-hmm. saying that actually, you know, young women. We're talking about 17 or 18 year olds. And there's a link to the Daily Caller article, which, again, so maybe they, you know, you can criticize them if initially they said it. Would, they did change it after the um, after the criticism from 17 to 18, according to hmm. this article, and that's something I- important to note. Whereas Facebook just just Freezes the account, doesn't give an explanation for why, and then has its you know, independent, its paid by Facebook ideological fact checker organizations that I've criticized on the show a million times because I-, I think they're just as often wrong as anyone else, um, is not a good m- model. And uh, Twitter, is, I would argue, actually has the healthier model. Like, I'm not Do- sure because there are things that are wrong on social media all the time, and when the site itself uh, you know they can do it. It's their site, but you know makes itself the avatar of what is true on the platform. In this very one-sided, it's only you know weighing in when there's something that bother or that the political right is saying that bothers uh, sort of mainstream consensus, and it's only taking platform-directed mo- uh, uh, action. Um, I, I think I think that's not necessarily a great policy.
1: Well. To be clear, the lives of TikTok is locked out of the Facebook account. The Facebook account isn't shut down. You can still go and see But Do we know anything about whether it's a permanent lockout versus a temporary one? Yes,
0: permanent. That's what they said
1: mm, yeah it, it will be interesting to see if there's any kind of interesting to see if there's any kind of appeals process there because without giving a rationale that is a significant hit to people's ability yeah. to if you have a business promote their business if you have a political campaign and promote your political pa- campaign these are these these platforms really are instrumental to people's ability to communicate these days the same way that shutting down someone's phone line um, would have an impact on their ability to communicate with the rest of the world but I'm curious at some point I do think that we'd probably agree that there's some version of something that could be posted that should justify this kind of behavior. Would you This should justify or, what do, kind of behavior? Uh, either shutting down an account or mm-hmm. pulling down a post. Mm-hmm. Do you think that oh, that's? Oh, certainly. Surprising? Yeah. Well, so, I th- and I
0: think everyone would, everyone draws that line a little bit well, differently. Well, we do, all think that you know explicit calls to violence should be taken down by. The well,
1: the, I mean, the first, I mean, right. the law says that. But right. like in terms of our own personal feelings, some people are free speech absolutists yeah. and would like sites that would allow you to post anything, no matter how gruesome or targeting or harmful, harmful or. Uh, I think if violence. they if
0: they put up somebody's phone number or home address and it's not like that phone number is listed already because they're a congressman and that phone number mm-hmm. is listed publicly, that's fine. But if you just do that to, to uh, some person's phone number or home address and you put that up, yeah, I think, the, I think the platform should take that down, absolutely. So
1: the point I'm trying to get to, though, is if we work from the presumption that we all agree that some yeah. some kind of censorship is appropriate, I do think that sometimes we should work back from that principle because so many of these conversations end up being about, well, you just don't care about censorship and you you know mm-hmm. love to shut people down... Well, okay, maybe this isn't it for you, but what is it? and then what did the protocol look like? What does the protocol look like to judge whether or not something meets the criteria? That's all I ever want. Sure. So many times I don't need us for to, us to all agree on the, like the, on what our personal values are, what we'd like to see, et cetera, et cetera. All I want to know is that there's some some thought that's been put into this that, and something written, something codified that we can all reason the, back from when these instances emerge. But the
0: platforms don't do that right. right. They're so bad at this, they're so reactive, they get screamed at. By, and, and the kinds of people they listen to are disproportionately likely to be um, Team Blue voices or, or you know, mainstream media, media figures or progressive accounts who are like, why is this up? Oh my God, this is inviting harassment against whoever my, my disenfranchised group is. And then the platform springs into action to do something about that. They, and it, that's a very one-sided kind of pressure they face. And, it, you know, it's interesting.
1: You mentioned in a, in a segment we did last week that you're not wild about uh, liable defamation laws, generally yeah. speaking. But there is an argument here, that the way that someone should take care of this in the same way. What were we talking about? Was it? Uh, oh, it was the Alex Jones lawsuit. Mm-hmm. That the way to take care of some of these people who, you know, put out misinformation that ends up targeting and harassing people is just for the subjects of that targeting uh, and harassment to to file suit. And there's a world where maybe they don't the platform doesn't intervene, but the Boston Children's Hospital brings a lawsuit and gets something like this taken down. I think the only concern with relying on that kind of a legal avenue is that a lot of people who might be targeted don't have the resources that say the Boston Children's Hospital probably does to file a lawsuit and to act with enough speed to prevent some of the Mm -hmm. worst harms of the misinformation from occurring. I mean,
0: I don't know, you could well that's certainly true, but in, in these specific cases we're talking about, you could you know you could probably find a, an advocacy group that will help you out. Maybe they might be interested Maybe in taking on these fights. Not in every what's case. What's the
1: ACLU up to these days? The, are there a human not.
0: rights campaign or something? <laughs> or, I don't know. All these yeah. groups are just concentrated on electing Hillary Clinton or something. I don't
1: know. Yeah, uh, writing uh, letters for Amber Heard. Sorry, <laughs> exactly. I know, I know. I well, have I mean, mixed mean, feelings about mean. that one. <laughs> All right, tomorrow on
0: Rising, we'll hand over the baton to Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky, and they're gonna have a deep dive discussion with molecular biologist Alina Chan about the latest on the lab leak theory.
1: Hmm, Sounds interesting. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts.
0: Mm, it was a fun day. It was good to be back in studio. And we matched today uh, inadvertently.
1: We got our act together. We got our act (laughs) together finally. See,
0: yeah, we're back on screen. It was totally, totally accidental.
1: (laughs) Tune in next week to see if we can keep this magic alive.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.